You are listening to audio from First Baptist Church in Fort Walton Beach. If you would like more resources or to watch our service online, please visit fbcfwb.org. Listen in as Pastor Wade helps us abide in Christ and advance the gospel through the teaching and the proclamation of God's Word. She was one of the best school teachers I ever had. Her name was Estic Rawlings. She called her students her scholars. I remember as a ninth grader feeling very special that she would call me a scholar. I remember in her English class learning the nuts and bolts of writing letters. And she, she really worked hard to help us to learn how to write you know, formal letters or business letters and to write those letters in the right way. And I rem- remember her teaching that to write a proper letter, there needs to be an introduction, then there needs to be the body of the letter, the substance of the letter, and then you need to, to finish the letter with a conclus- conclusion uh, before you sign it. Well, I want to remind you that the book of Ephesians is a letter. It's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of Christians in the first century city of Ephesus. And uh, I know Paul didn't have Estic Rawlings as a teacher, uh, but she would have been proud of the way he wrote this letter. Because he begins Ephesians with a word of greeting and introduction. We see the body of the letter unfold as we have studied it. And then at the very end, there are some final words, a a closing to the letter. And this morning, as we finish our study on the book of Ephesians, we're going to look at this last passage, this, this closing section of the letter. In fact, in this section of the letter, Paul is bidding the Christians in Ephesus a fond farewell. And in a sense, we as a church are bidding the letter of Ephesians a fond farewell. We've been studying this this letter for, I don't know, about a year and a half. Uh, We've stepped out a couple times to come back to this study, but we've been working our way through the book of Ephesians. It has been a rich study. And the foundation of the preaching ministry here is that we go through books of the Bible. We take breaks. We'll step out and do series. And for example, we've got a series coming up leading up to Easter Sunday. There will be one-off sermons and special sermons and seasonal sermons. But for the most part, we preach through the books of the Bible. My plan after Easter, Lord willing, is to begin a study on the book of Daniel. But here's what I hope happens as we study through books of the Bible. I understand that you're probably not going to be able to remember specific sermon titles in Ephesians or specific sermon outlines or specific points that I preached. But I do believe that when you pick up the book of Ephesians at a later date and you read it or study it, there will be some familiarity there because we worked through it line by line, verse by verse, studying its contents. I hope there will be this familiarity uh, with the book of Ephesians. When you read through it, I I hope you remember, yeah, I remember studying that. I remember learning that. I remember talking about that. I I, I remember this emphasis in Pastor Wade's sermon. I hope it will be a familiar book to you and, and be foundational in your life. But I also hope that book studies shape the spiritual life of God's church. In other words, I hope that we'll be able to look back at studies through certain books of the Bible 
and remember how God worked in our church at that place and time. For example, I remember we were studying spiritual warfare, and I remember God renewing His people with a with a. a, 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 a fresh emphasis on prayer and, 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 and people were focused on prayer like never before in the church. I remember God doing that in the book of Ephesians or I remember God working on my marriage as we talked about marriage in Ephesians chapter 5 or whatever it may be. I hope that you'll see God working specifically in your life using his word in very specific and powerful ways. And so Paul is bidding a fond farewell to the church in Ephesus. And we are bidding a fond farewell to this wonderful, wonderful book. So look there with me in Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to begin reading in verse 21. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 21, down through verse 24. If you are physically able, I want to ask you to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 21. Paul writes... So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith. From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Let's pray together this morning. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We pause in this moment to worship you. We pause in this moment to recognize our need for you. We pause in this moment to ask you to move with power by the Holy Spirit in our lives as we study the Word of God. Lord, I pray today that we will leave knowing that we have met with the living God. I pray that we will leave today knowing that you have done a fresh work in our lives. So Father, would you move with power? We love you, we praise you, we exalt you, we lift this prayer up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As I've said many times throughout this study, J. Sidlow Baxter divides the book of Ephesians into two parts. He says that chapters 1 through 3 describe our wealth in Christ, all of the riches that are ours in a relationship with Jesus. The second half of the book, chapters 4 through 6, describe our walk with Christ, how we ought to live in light of all that the Lord has done for us. Ruth Paxson, a missionary, adds a third W, she talks about wealth and walk, but she also talks about warfare because a major emphasis at the end of the book is on spiritual warfare. Wealth, walk, warfare. That's what we have studied in these months together. And now we've come to the closing, the final part of this letter. 
And in the final part of this letter, Paul wants the, the Christians in Ephesus to focus their thoughts on the great themes of the Christian faith. That's what this final section is about. And as, as he points them in that direction, there are three closing headings, three closing thoughts. I want to show you these and then we'll be through. First of all, there is notification. Notification. He wants them to know something. It says it there in verse 21. So that you also may know how I am and what I'm doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. Paul mentions a colleague in his missionary endeavors. His name is Tychicus. We first come across this name in Acts chapter 20, verse 4, when he's mentioned as part of the missionary team of Paul. He and Trophimus are called Asians. They were from Asia Minor. And somewhere along the line, probably the third missionary journey, Paul meets Tychicus and entrusts to him uh, this role on his team to take the gospel uh, everywhere that God leads. And so Tychicus was a critical part of what Paul tried to accomplish as a missionary. Paul had uh, colleagues, he had friends and companions that uh, helped him to do what God had called him to do. And he mentions two things about Tychicus here that I think we ought to note. First of all, he mentions the character of Tychicus. Look what he says there in verse one or verse 21. That you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, look how he describes him here. The beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord. The beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord. He describes Tychicus as... A brother in Christ. And he calls him there a beloved brother. Paul cherished his relationship with Tychicus. Tychicus meant a lot to Paul. And he calls him there a faithful minister. He faithfully discharged his calling. He faithfully served the Lord. He faithfully advanced the gospel in the Great Commission. And Paul recognizes that by calling him a faithful minister. That word minister is the Greek word diakonos, where we get the word deacon from. Tychicus was a servant, a faithful servant. So he mentions his character, and then he mentions his mission. He says in verse 21, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, beloved brother, faithful minister, he will tell you everything. And so Paul is saying Tychicus is going to come He's going to update you on my situation, Paul writes, how I'm doing, what's going on in my ministry. But that's not all. Look what it says in verse 22. I've sent him to you for this very purpose that you, know, that you may know how we are, that he may encourage your hearts. As he updates you on, on my missionary endeavors, what God is doing to get the gospel to the very ends of the earth, you will be encouraged by what Tychicus has to share. And the implication is this, and this is of critical importance. Tychicus was the one carrying the letter that we call Ephesians. He was the mailman. He was the delivery man. He was the one that brought this letter that we call Scripture, that is Scripture. He brought this letter from Paul to the Christians in Ephesus. Paul mentions Tychicus in a similar vein in Colossians 4, verse 7. Writing to the Christians in Colossae, As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother, faithful servant. Same description. 
and fellow bondservant in the Lord will bring you information. So Tychicus was important in getting information out on behalf of Paul. Hey, just a quick reminder, when Paul wrote the letter of Ephesians, he was in prison. He couldn't go himself. He was incarcerated. So he needed somebody to go and help him get the word out to deliver messages, to deliver letters. Tychicus had a critical role, which reminds us of this. Everyone has a role in the kingdom. Probably most of you here today have heard of the Apostle Paul. But I would guess that a very slim number of you could articulate anything about Tychicus. There's not a lot of information about him. He's mentioned at the end of letters. If you're reading through the Bible, you might just skip right over his name and not stop to consider who he was. But Tychicus had a vital role in the kingdom. Had it not been for Tychicus, we might not have the book of Ephesians in our Bible. It might have been lost to posterity. We, we wouldn't have it anymore. But Tychicus was faithful, a faithful minister, a faithful servant. And, and he delivered this letter and gave them news. He had a, a niche, a very important role in the kingdom, which reminds me of this principle. When it comes to kingdom work, it's not about your fame. It's not about the prominence of what you do. It's about your faithfulness. Some people are front and center when it comes to serving God. They're standing on stages and, and they're in front of people like me preaching this morning. But some people are behind the scenes. And those who are working behind the scenes, those whose names may not be known, their role is just as important as the preacher. Everyone has a role in the kingdom. It's not about the name on the church sign or the name on the church website. It's about the Tychicuses who work behind the scenes to minister to touch people's lives. And without the Tychicuses out there, churches would not be able to function. Amen? Everyone has a role in the kingdom. And Tychicus reminds us of that very important reality. So he notifies them. Here's why I've sent Tychicus. Give you information. He's bringing you the letter. He's going to encourage your hearts. Notification. But secondly... Not only is there notification in these closing thoughts, there is salutation. Again, Miss Estick Rawlings would have been proud of the way that Paul wrote this letter. There's salutation. Look what it says in verse 23. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all. Grace be with all. I love how Paul gives these final words of salutation because in these words there we see the hallmarks of Christianity I mean the things that make Christianity Christianity so for example look he mentions the word peace peace be to the brothers we see the theme of peace all throughout the scriptures the the Hebrew word for peace is the word shalom 
The, the Greek word for peace is the word irene. And the word peace is very important, and it teaches something very important about a relationship with God. If you look there in your notes, here's what peace is. Peace is the state of wholeness, well-being, and rest that come from a relationship with God. The state of wholeness, well-being, and rest that comes from a relationship with God. That's what peace is. In other words, when you come into a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, God gives you a a spiritual, an emotional wholeness because you have a relationship with Him. And your life begins to make sense. And you have hope in your future. I like to say it like this. Peace comes when you're Past has been redeemed, your present has purpose, and your future is secure. That's peace. And Paul reminds them, in Christ you have peace. Peace be with you. He's reminding them of that spiritual reality that we have in a relationship with Christ. In Christ we have peace with God, a relationship with God. And in Christ we experience the peace of God as we walk through this old world world. Peace. But there's another hallmark of Christianity. It's love. He says there in verse 23, peace be to the brothers and love with faith. Love. The word translated love there is the word agape. Agape. It speaks of God-like love. The kind of love that God exemplified when he sent his only son to this earth to come and die on the cross for our sins. What amazing love God has shown to us. And hey, just quick side note, I don't want to miss this moment. Everybody look at me for a moment. God loves you. You just need to hear that. God loves you. And he proved it by giving his son to die on the cross in your place and my place. God loves you. And he reminds us here of the love of God. And he says, may you experience this this reality of peace and this reality of love. If you look there in your notes, love speaks of the perfect love of God, agape, that we are to embrace, to accept. And then, as Christians, we are then to extend it to one another. That's Christianity in a nutshell. Experience God's love, accept his love in Christ, and then love him and love other people. That's what Christianity is. So he says, peace be to the brothers and love, but look what he says, with faith. May your love be accompanied with faith. The word faith means belief in the truth of God's word that cause a response of trust and action. He's saying, may your life be grounded Uh, in the truths of what God has said. May you believe his word and then act accordingly. May you have faith. May you take God at his word. May your love be accompanied with this, this trust in God's truth and this action in response to what God has said. But then he mentions grace. Look what it says there in verse 24. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, here's my final words, peace, love, faith, grace. What is grace? 
Grace is simply God's unmerited or undeserved favor and blessing. It's God heaping on us riches that we do not deserve. Spiritual riches in Christ. It's God blessing us over and over and over again even though we are unworthy of the blessing. That's what grace is. That's why we call His grace amazing. It's amazing grace. It's it's God's favor that we do not deserve. And I think it's interesting to note that grace saturates this letter. In fact, at the very beginning of the letter, in chapter 1, verse 2, he says, grace to you. He, he starts the letter with them thinking about God's undeserved favor. And he ends the letter by speaking of grace. Grace be with all who love the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's found in the middle of the letter over in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Your salvation is by grace. You don't deserve it. You didn't earn it. You receive it by faith. It's a gift of God. So this letter, the New Testament, the Bible is saturated with the idea of grace and His grace is amazing. And so as Paul gives his final salutation, he just mentions the hallmarks of Christianity. Peace, love, faith, grace. You know, there are some hallmarks to living in Florida, right? Sunshine. Warm weather. This past week I was on a, a Zoom call with some pastors in uh, South Dakota. And I, I could see them. They all had on flannels and fleeces. And they said, well, how's the weather down there? And I said, do you really want me to tell you? <laughs> they understand that, hey, Florida's called the sunshine state, right? There's some hallmarks to living in Florida, some things that make Florida, Florida. Well, listen, there are some things that make Christianity, Christianity. Hallmarks. They are peace, and love, and faith, and grace. These hallmarks are what make Christianity such a wonderful blessing for those who know Christ. So there's notification and there's salutation, but third, there's conclusion. A final concluding thought, and it's fascinating. Paul mentions love here twice. He says, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ. Then he describes a kind of love that Christians ought to have for Jesus. Who love the Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. He doesn't just say grace be with all those who love the Lord. Grace be with all those who love the Lord with a love incorruptible. He wants them to finish the letter thinking about their response to grace, which is love for Jesus, a pure love for Jesus. I study that word that's translated incorruptible. The word is optharsia. In the Greek language. And it's a really fascinating word. It means a continuous state or process. With the implication that the state or process in question is not interrupted. So it means 
something that is ongoing. So he's saying here, may you love the Lord Jesus Christ in a way that is ongoing. This word was used of something being uninterrupted even by death. You would use it to say something like, I love you with an undying love, an unceasing love, an an always type of love. A.T. Robertson says it like this. It's a never diminishing love. I like that. May you love the Lord Jesus Christ with a never diminishing love. May your love not fade. May your love not weaken. May your love be unfading, undying. The pulpit commentary comments on this word by writing this. The love that marks genuine Christians is not a passing gleam like the morning cloud and the early dew, but an abiding emotion. Grace be with all who love the Lord Jesus Christ with a love that is incorruptible. A love that is unfading, undying, never diminishing. That's the kind of love that we ought to have. That's how he closes the letter. So isn't it interesting that a few decades later, Jesus himself addresses this church. And he deals with the issue of love. In fact, hold your place, but turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Near the end of the first century, Jesus appears in a vision to one of his original apostles, the apostle John, who is in exile on Patmos. And he gives him... A vision of the unfolding future, the unfolding scenario of the end times. But before he gets into the specifics of the end times, Jesus has seven specific messages for seven specific churches in the first century in Asia Minor. And the very first church that Jesus addresses is the church in Ephesus. Now remember how the letter ended. Love the Lord Jesus Christ with a love that is incorruptible. Look what Jesus says in Revelation chapter 2. To the angel or the messenger or the pastor of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. To the church, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Paul says, love Jesus with an unfading, undiminished love. Jesus said a few decades later, your love is faded. You don't love me, Jesus says, like you used to. Your love has diminished. Your love has been corrupted. Your love has been interrupted. It's not like it used to be. Now I want to make just a few quick observations about the church in Ephesus. 
Because Jesus says some very important things in the verses preceding verse 4. Notice that you can be a faithful worker in the church and not love Jesus. Look look at verse 2. I know your works, your toil, and patient endurance. You are working hard for Jesus. The word toil is the word kopos. It's the word for roll up your sleeves kind of work. I mean, the church in Ephesus, they were, they were hard workers. You can never question their, their Christian work ethic in and through the church. But note, you can work in the church and not love Jesus. Did you know this? You can stand against the evils in our culture and not love Jesus. Look what he says in verse 2. You cannot bear with those who are evil. The church in Ephesus had drawn some lines of right and wrong. And they were standing for what was right and abhorring what was wrong. They called good, good and called evil, evil. And that is commendable, but listen to me. You can stand for the right things. You can draw lines in the sand without loving Jesus. That's the implication. You can be doctrinally sound and not love Jesus. Back in verse 2 he says, You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. He says when someone shows up with a message, you take out your Bible and you test it. And if it doesn't line up with the Bible, if it doesn't line up with Christian doctrine and belief, you call them false teachers. In fact, a little bit later in this address to the church in Ephesus, Jesus mentions them standing against the Nicolaitans who were teaching false doctrine. So so the church in Ephesus was doctrinally sound. They would sign the doctrinal statements and say, we stand for the right stuff, and you can do that. Be completely orthodox. And not love Jesus. You can endure hardship and not love Jesus. Look what Jesus says in verse 3. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake have not grown weary. Not being, it was not easy being a Christian in the first century. They experienced hardship and, and persecution and deprivation and ridicule. And yet they just kept on keeping on. They didn't throw in the towel and Jesus mentions their perseverance. The point is this, you can persevere through hardship in the name of Jesus without loving Jesus. You might say, well, who were their pastors? For them not to love Jesus, it must have been a leadership issue, right? Can I tell you some of the people that served in the capacity of pastor at the church in Ephesus? How about Paul? He was in Ephesus for two years, fulfilling the ministry of the word in a pastoral type capacity, apostolic type capacity. So he's a pretty reliable spiritual leader, I think. For a time, Apollos preached there. Apollos was the one who was called eloquent and mighty in the scriptures, a mighty preacher of God's word. He led the church in Ephesus. Timothy 
led the church in heaven. He was Paul's personal protege. We have the letters 1 and 2 Timothy where Paul is writing to, to his protege, instructing him how to lead the church in Ephesus. The Apostle John, who wrote the book of Revelation, he served in a pastoral capacity in the church at Ephesus. So it's like this church had a who's who of Christian leaders leading their church. And yet they didn't love Jesus. Somewhere over the time between Paul writing his letter to the church in Ephesus and and Jesus addressing the church in Ephesus, somewhere along the way, the church's love for Jesus had faded. It had diminished. And Jesus himself addresses it. I want you just to come in close for a moment. This is a frightening reality. For all of us gathered here today. You can be an upstanding citizen, a respectable church member, with great spiritual leaders, and not have a fervent love for Jesus. It's possible. It's possible. No wonder Paul closed the letter by saying, May you love the Lord Jesus with a love that is incorruptible, never diminishing, never fading, may that characterize your love for Him. Which leads to this very practical question, and we're going to close with this. How do we maintain unfading love for Jesus? How do we, how do we love Jesus with a love that just gets stronger and stronger instead of weaker and weaker? I'm going to give you just four quick thoughts about how you maintain unfading, undiminished love for Christ. Number one, evaluate your love often. Evaluate your love often. In other words, you and I need to stop every so often and ask the question, how's it going? Do I love Jesus the way I used to love Jesus? Is my passion for Christ burning brightly? Or is that fire for Jesus grown smaller and smaller and now it's basically smoldering embers? Evaluate. Even right now, in in this moment, with with the Holy Spirit moving in your heart, evaluate. How am I doing? Do I love Jesus? Do I love Jesus with an undiminishing love? Evaluate. Ask yourself how you're doing. Secondly, forbid your heart to love other things more than Jesus. Forbid your heart to love other things more than Jesus. In other words, remove things that do not stir your affections for Christ. There are things in your life that you are allowing in your heart and in your mind and in your your day-to-day living, and it's not fanning an affection for Christ. You might need to remove it. Deal with it. Forbid your heart to love something more than Jesus. Say, no, I'm not going there. My priorities have have shifted. Jesus is no longer number one. No wonder I don't love him anymore like I used to. And so I'm going to make sure that Jesus is number one in my life. 
forbid your heart to love other things more than Jesus. You might need to do some spiritual heart surgery. There's something in your heart that doesn't belong there. Get it out by the power of the Spirit of God. Deal with it because it's keeping you from loving Jesus. Number three, take more time with Jesus. You've heard me say this many, many times. I got that phrase from Andrew Murray in a devotion I was reading a few years ago. Take more time with Jesus. The best way to grow in your love relationship with Jesus is to spend time with Jesus. By the way, it's that way with almost any relationship, right? If you want to grow close to your spouse, you need to spend time with your spouse. If you want to grow close to your kids, spend time with your kids. I mean, that's how relationships work. If we ignore each other in our earthly relationships, we won't love each other the way that we could. And I think a lot of people ignore Jesus. And they wonder why they feel so distant. I've shared this before, but let's take my marriage as an example. What if I treated my wife the way many people treat Jesus? What if I said to Claire, Claire, you are awesome. You are incredible. I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. And guess what? Every Sunday I'm going to come sit with you for about an hour. I'm going to tell you how much I love you. But then when I leave, I won't talk to you again until the next Sunday. I'm going to ignore you all week long. Not a word, not a thought. I'm just going to go through my life. But I'll be back next Sunday. When I show up, I'm going to say, I love you, I love you, I love you. You're so, you're so, you're so awesome. You're incredible. I would submit to you that would not be a very strong marriage. Would you agree with that? But isn't that how a lot of people treat Jesus? We come on Sundays... How great thou art. I love you. I love you. I love you. And yet we don't talk to him on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. We spend no time with him. And we wonder why our love has grown cold. The best way to grow in your love for Christ is to sit in his presence with the open Bible and read about him, let him speak to you, and you talk to him, and you rejoice in him, and you invite him into your life to work and to move. And, and, and when you spend time with Christ, you can't help but love him more and more and more, which leads to the final thing. Give space in your life to things and people that stir your affections for Christ. Not only do you want the wrong things out of your life because they, they dampen your affection for Christ, you want people in your life that stir up your affection for Christ. People that are praying for you and people you can talk to, God, to, uh, talk to people, uh, people you can talk to uh, about spiritual things with. You can talk about God's word with them and, and, and pray with them. They're people that encourage you. Give space in your life to things and people that stir your affections for Christ. But here's the deal. In light of God's riches in Jesus, all of the spiritual blessings He has lavished upon us in Christ, we should respond with a love that is unfading, undiminished. 
undying. When Peter fell, denying Jesus three times, Jesus encountered him after his resurrection on a beach at the Sea of Galilee where he was cooking fish for the disciples to eat. And Jesus turns his attention to Peter because Jesus is going to graciously restore Peter. Do you remember what he asked Peter? He didn't say, Peter, do you serve me? He didn't ask that. He didn't say, Peter, do you believe in me? As important as that is, he didn't ask that. He didn't say, Peter, do you stand for truth? He didn't ask that. He didn't say, Peter, do you tithe? He didn't say, Peter, do you persevere for me? Jesus looked at Peter and asked this simple question three times. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And that was the beginning of Peter's restoration because Peter knew that serving Jesus and living for Jesus all started with love for Jesus. So how about you? With Jesus moving through this room this morning, and he is. When he stops at your heart and he asks the question, do you love me? What's your response? May we love the Lord Jesus with an incorruptible love. Here's the takeaway. In light of all that God has done through Christ, Christians should be characterized by faithful service and unfading love. That's what our lives ought to look like because of all that Christ has done for us. Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's Word. May the Lord richly bless you.